Cornette had his very out in the third quarter. And believe it or not, Jim Boylan said that he reminds him of Robert Ory. What? Yeah. <laughs> Neil Funk, Stacey King. Oh, is... my goodness. Robert Ory? Players buying in, Jim? I Yes. Fair enough. If you build it, they will come, Joel. Seen that movie? Thank you for joining me every Sunday morning at 11 here on 88.7 FM WLUW. Got an hour uninterrupted of your favorite small town kid. Go to the Loyola Phoenix, Nick Schultz. I know Sister Jean pretty well. I think he's the sports editor there. He is. Right? He's a sports he's editor. Yeah. Sports good, columnist, sports writer. And, uh, and there's a, there's... I'd be lying if I said I wasn't watching baseball in class. Nick Schultz, who is a, a rising star in the profession. Our guy, Nick Schultz, covers... Loyola for the student newspaper there, the Loyola Phoenix. I have to keep pinching myself and asking <laughs> if this is real. I cannot believe this is happening. I'm a poor, starving college student, so I would say I was physically here, but I wouldn't say I was mentally here. Friday, August 14th, 8.30 a.m., I got woken up by my dad to the breaking news that Jim Boylan was fired as the Bulls head coach. And that's why in my open I played my three all-time favorite Jim Boylan moments from his two years as the Bulls head coach. And that's the big story this Sunday here on the Sunday Sports Shootout on 88.7 FM, WLUW, Chicago Sound Alliance. I'm your host, Nick Schultz. He's gone. The house has been cleaned. The Bulls are officially starting fresh next season. Gar Foreman's gone. John Paxson's gone. Well, he's an advisory role. For all intents and purposes, he's gone. Jim Boylan is now gone. It is a whole new era of Chicago Bulls basketball. And I hope you're as excited as I am. And my guest this week is going to be Rob Schaefer of NBC Sports Chicago. He's all over the Bulls beat. I'll have that in a little bit. Because we have more than just Bulls to talk about this week. Because the Cubs were playing well. They stumbled against the Brewers, but they're still playing really well. And I, I have some theories as to why this team is doing so much better, even though a lot of the same pieces are here from last year. And I'll get into that in the second half hour. Also in the second half hour, what is going on with the White Sox? I saw one comparison to the White Sox World Series hype as the Mitch Trubisky MVP hype. I'm not ready to go that far, but I have a solution on that too. And I, I think I found a common denominator here. Also, the Blackhawks in a 3 nothing hole to the number one seed of Vegas Golden Knights. But they could be better than no wins in this series. And I'll have my thoughts on last night's game especially. And we have Bears news to talk about because the quarterback competition is underway up at Hallis Hall. And because they're not in Bourbon A anymore. And no fans are allowed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But up at Hallis Hall, the quarterback competition is getting underway finally. We've heard so much about the quarterback competition. And now it's getting underway in Lake Forest. All of that is coming up in the second half hour. And it's going to be a jam-packed 30 minutes. And I hope you will all stick with me through that second 30 minutes. But again, the big news that we're talking about, Jim Boylan out as Bulls head coach. Who could replace him? We've heard a bunch of candidates thrown out. And we've heard a bunch of different ideas as to why why it took Arturis Karnaschovas and Mark Eversley to wait until the last day of the regular season to announce that Jim Boylan would be relieved of his duties as Bulls head coach. And I will dive into all of that with my friend Rob Schaefer. Rob was gracious enough to take time yesterday over Zoom to talk about this. It was... A very fast unfolding story. It happened on Friday, and he spared a few minutes. Yesterday, we talked about who could replace Jim Boylan, what this move means, what could with this what could this offseason mean? Because the comparison I made was the offseason of 1998. And 
Rob and I agree, this could be the most interesting offseason since 1998. But we dive into all that here, so for the next 25 minutes or so, here is Rob Schaefer from NBC Sports Chicago. Sunday Sports Shootout, WAUW 88.7 FM. I'm Nick Schultz. I'm excited to welcome in Rob Schaefer of NBC Sports Chicago. He is one of the guys all over the Bulls beat over there. I got to know him pretty well during my internship, and I'm glad he could spare a few minutes during this crazy weekend. Obviously, the big news is Jim Boylan was fired by the Bulls on Friday, and Rob joins me now. Rob, how's it going? You keeping on your toes with all this? Yeah, we're good. It was, uh, yeah, it, it, it's funny because right as the story was taking a turn where, okay, we're really going to have to settle in and wait this thing out. Um, all of a sudden, last day of the regular season, it breaks and uh, all of Bulls Twitter goes crazy. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's been a wild um, day or two. Uh, and it, it certainly will only get wilder from here as the search goes on and stuff. So um, yeah, it'll certainly be something to track. And I'm going to get right to it here because obviously you, you remember how much I loved Jim Boylan when I interned over at NBC, but what was kind of your reaction when you saw the press release come out yesterday? Yeah. I mean, instant reaction was shock um, because I just, and and in retrospect, it seems so obvious that it would be on the last day of the regular season. Um, It it just seems like a very professional way to, to go about doing this. You know, like going through and assuaging ownership and, and making clear that you're getting to know Jim um, and building a case as to why or why not he should be retained and then doing it kind of symbolically. You know, if, if there wasn't a pandemic and he was to be fired at the end of the season, it would have happened on the last day of the regular season. It happens on the last day of the regular season this time, too, which is weird because the Bulls aren't playing. Um, but in spite of all those things that we can now look at in retrospect, I, I was definitely shocked. Um, and, and the, you know, there's a human element to this, too. Um, AK alluded to that on his conference call. Um, and as for my own personal experiences with Jim, you know, he was always good to me, respectful to me, um, answered, you know, my questions thoughtfully. Um, so I always appreciate him for that. Um, that being said, uh, I think the consensus amongst Bulls fans, and I think I agree with it, is that it was time to make this change. Um, things were not trending positively. Um, you know, there are a bunch of stats you could turn to, whether it be their record against teams above 500, whether it be his 39-84 record as a coach that are just kind of historic in the magnitude that the Bulls lost games during uh, his tenure. There was um, regression from key players. Uh, there were questions about his player relationships. So I, I think all that adds up to when you have a new front office regime in it making sense to make the change. Um, the candidates on the board so far seem all right. Uh, if not great, um, in my own opinion. So um, yeah, I, I think there was surprise that the news happened so suddenly uh, and kind of without a run up or a warning. Um, but ultimately, it, it is the place where I think a lot of people expected us to be at this point when AK took over, um, and it's probably the right place to be. Yeah, because you talk about it happening quickly. Last week on my show, I was talking about Joe Cowley's report that it was mm-hmm. likely that Jim was going to stick around because of financial concerns. And then you see the press release at like 8.30 in the morning on Friday. I had, my dad woke me up. He was like, had to like shake me awake because I was, I was out cold. And to see that, like, I was, I was shocked that it came out. I didn't process it was the last day of the regular season. But, I mean, like you said, I think they did well taking their time with it, even though fans didn't like it. Sure. Yeah, and, it, I mean, you know, it's an organization that has fired and had one coach resign on Christmas Eve. That's, that's happened multiple times in organization history. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote that yesterday. And I just think, um, you know, as much as people got a little antsy and there was some consternation, I think that's understandable, um, the fact that we got where – uh, it seemed like they should have gone all along, should just be something to be appreciated. They didn't miss out on any um, key candidates or candidates they would be going after uh, by taking their time with this. Uh, and I think, it, it, you know, people might scoff at this line of thinking, but I think it does do something for uh, the reputation of an organization uh, to treat a decision like this seriously, deliberately, and, and um, respectfully by all accounts. So, um, but yeah, and like I said, they, there wasn't really much of an opportunity cost in terms of missing candidates, um, unless you were a bring back Thibodeau person, which I that was my top choice. <laughs> I, I, I love Tibbs, but I'm you know I, I think there's a different direction the organization can go in um, now. Uh, the the one level of an opportunity cost is now you're seeing uh, the Pelicans fired Alvin Gentry. The Nets obviously might have a coaching search coming up, and you could say, well, now the Bulls will have competition on the coaching market between teams that might be in better situations than them roster wise. Uh, I think that's fair, um, but at the end of the day, um, it's just part of the business. Uh, and now we can kind of move forward and um, see what this decision ends up being. I think um, AK and, and Mark Eversley and um, the crew that they're assembling there have built up uh, something of a, of a benefit of the doubt 
um, from the way they've conducted themselves so far. So it'll be interesting to see what direction they go. Yeah, and I want to talk about the competition a little later on, but before we get into like the search itself, I got to thinking about this this morning as I was getting questions together. Mm -hmm. We've seen huge changes from the Bulls. Gar Foreman's gone. John Paxson's in an advisory role, but for all intents and purposes, he's gone. Jim Boylan is now gone. The front office is now becoming a little more modernized. Mm -hmm. So I got to thinking, is this now the most interesting offseason for the Bulls since 1998? That's a good – yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's certainly the most kind of new variables and things that have changed, changed places. Um, I think it, it, there will be good competition next offseason when, uh, if you're a Bulls fan, you're hoping – um, they'll have max cap room and they'll have shown some improvements individually and as a team over the course of the year. Um, that'll be a highly anticipated off season. But yeah, I mean, as it stands right now, um, definitely. I mean, especially when you think about front office changes for this organization, I mean, Arturis Karnishevis is the third head of basketball operations since Jerry Reinsdorf bought the team. So it, there's an unprecedented nature to that. Um, the summer of the last dance adds to all of this. That's more of a, uh, that's more of a nebulous um, kind of add on there that's kind of just, um, you know, a little bit media propped up and generated and things like that, but it's still a factor. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you'd certainly have a case. I feel fortunate to have covered it, especially my first year on the beat. Uh, there have just been a lot of elements from the pandemic to All Star Weekend in Chicago uh, to all the things we just talked about that have been really surreal about this year. Um, so it's almost fitting that now the Bulls are launching into this era that is going to be. Uh, for all intents and purposes, like nothing we've ever seen from the Bulls before. So, And I'm pretty sure that's where I got 1998 from because I just watched The Last Dance again on Netflix. Yeah. I binged it. And I'm, I put out on Twitter, I might watch it a third time now that there's a new outlook that the direction is pointing up because before, in the back of my mind, like Jim Boylan's still there. We don't know what's going to happen. So it's, I wonder if it'll change how I watch it. Yeah, there's such a dramatic effect to it now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really just the symmetry is um, – as a writer, it's it's certainly something that I appreciate, no doubt. And Karnishev like, does too, because at a Eversley introductory press conference, he had um, he had his anecdote about how oh I was going to wait until Monday morning to call Mark, and I was so uh, you know filled with emotion watching the last dance that I just had to tonight. And perhaps that was playing it up for the fans and media a little bit, but I, I don't think Bulls fans are complaining about it at this point. I think it's you know it's all 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 change is welcome change at this point. It's so nice to be excited about Bulls basketball again, too, because he's, the last line of the last dance was the Bulls began to rebuild, and that's where it ended. And my first thought was, yeah, don't remind me. Yeah, and it hasn't, it hasn't stopped since, save for the five-year, uh, speaking of Thibodeau, Thibodeau era, um, competitive teams. Yeah, it's really just kind of been um, swoons to sparks of hope to it fades and things like that, so. Yeah, the, the hope is that this is the, this is the time when it builds towards sustained success. It's very, very early. It's very, very early, but there's, uh, there's reason for optimism. And now piggybacking off of all that, and I know you talked about the competition a little bit, which I'll get to next, but with all these changes, is the Bulls' job now that much more attractive to other suitors? I, I would think so, um, only because the gym the decision to me signals um, the cementing of something that we were kind of always told, but you just needed this last piece of proof to really, really lock it in that this front office really does have full autonomy over basketball decisions. You know, you mentioned that Gar Foreman is gone and John Paxson has kind of melted into the background. This to me really signals though, that the ownership may be having an affinity for Jim Boylan, uh, perhaps John Paxson having an affinity for Jim Boylan. None of those factors uh, in the end outweighed what Arturis Karnishevis, who uh, was hired to head basketball operations, none of that outweighed what he ultimately saw as best. Um, so if I'm a prospective coaching candidate, the fact that they moved on from Jim in the manner that they did um, proves that to me, proves that this front office has autonomy and has direction. I think that makes it an appealing um, uh, destination for that reason. Um, and then there were a lot of things that existed even with Jim there that I think make it um, uh, attractive, you know, young talent. I, I don't think anybody could say that this roster does, is devoid of all of us. Um, I mean, it's a roster that's won less than 30 games the last three seasons and won 22 this year. Uh, but, you know, the pieces that are on board certainly have potential. Um, you've got cap space coming up in 2021. I hinted at um, they haven't been loose with their draft picks or anything. They own all their draft capital moving forward. Um, and it's still Chicago, man. You know, it's still a great city. I mean, we know we spent time here. Uh, I'm not from here, but I've lived here for, um, you know, going on a year now, a little bit over a year now. And it, it's a great city. Um, the Bulls have 
large market resources in terms of facilities and things like that. People roll their eyes at that too, but it's true. Um, so for all those reasons, it, it is certainly an attractive coaching job to me and only made more so by the decisiveness of, of the gym move. Um, it, it's just when you talk about the competition, it's just brutal. You're going up against Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving in one corner and Zion Williamson in the other. You know, those, it, it's hard to compete with those no matter how attractive a destination you are. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking with Rob Schaefer of NBC Sports Chicago here on the Sunday Sports Shootout, WOUW. And Rob, I know you wrote about this yesterday, but I just want to discuss it with you. Is the early candidates to take the job? Who do you see as like your top five? So yeah, the top, the top five, we've all reported that NBC uh, Sports Chicago has been kind of the initial names. Um, Kenny Atkinson, who was the coach of the Nets, kind of dragged them out of their um, dumpster fire status from back in 2016 when they had no draft picks and no talent on the roster. And he built them into a location that obviously lured um, Durant and Irving, as I mentioned before, um, last summer. Uh, he's won. Uh, Wes Unsell Jr., who's an assistant coach uh, under Mike Malone with the Denver Nuggets. Uh, Ime Aduka, uh, who had been reported by uh, multiple outlets for, for a while um, and, and is certainly a candidate as well. Um, he's uh, an assistant coach with the Philadelphia 76ers. Him and uh, Unsell Jr., um, from what I can glean, are thought of as pretty bright defensive minds. Um, which is an interesting thing to note. Um, and then beyond that, uh, Stephen Silas, son of Paul Silas, who's an assistant uh, with the Mavericks, is a candidate. And Darvin Ham uh, with the Bucks, uh, who uh, had a um, near decade-long playing career, won a title with the Pistons, um, has been with the Bucks for a while. Um, and yeah, to me, all of those candidates, uh, the, the thread that kind of um, permeates and is consistent with all of them, um, is a background of being strong in player development. That's, you, you hear that word. Uh, it's, it's become a buzzword in Bulls world at this point, but you do hear that word associated with all five of those candidates. Um, Kenny Atkinson is the only one of those that has held a head coaching seat before, so that's certainly notable too. Um, but even the ones that only have assistant coaching experience have, you know, plenty, uh, uh, some, some decades worth of assistant coaching experience. So um, they may be on the younger and unproven side, but um, I think they're well regarded for a reason. Um, and you can see them bring a, a, a kind of fresh perspective. So I, I, they're not necessarily the mainstream types that you see coming out um, with the Pelicans and possibly the Nets searches, the Ty Lues, the Jason Kidds. Um, there are even Greg Popovich to the Nets rumors that are, I'm sure, uh, not super substantiated. I hadn't heard that. But um, yeah, but it, it, it's an interesting crop of candidates. It's, it's people that are well thought of. And um, the two that stand out to me among that group are, are Kenny Atkinson because of his track record. He's been a head coach. Andy has ties to the Bulls' lead assistant, Chris Fleming, who was an assistant under him when he was in Brooklyn. Um, and Wes Unsell Jr., uh, obviously the AK connection. They were both in Denver together for multiple years. Um, and he's been bouncing around for a while and uh, watching interviews of him, reading coverage of him from over the years, and, and just kind of trying to figure out what his philosophies are, what his reputation is. He seems like he's someone who's ready for a head coaching job, too. So those are the two that I probably have my eye closest on. Um, but all five of those, uh, you know, we've uh, confirmed that at NBC Sports Chicago and um, um, appear to be a promising crop of candidates so far. So we'll see how it develops. Now, the one name I heard early on, this was before Jim was fired. I'd heard Archie Griffin's name tossed around, but I listened to the radio yesterday and I, I don't know how I missed this. His ex-wife came out with domestic violence accusations. So you think that kind of takes him off the table? Yeah, it's Adrian, Adrian Griffin, yeah. Or Adrian um, Griffin, I'm sorry. I don't know the nature. I just don't personally know the nature of how seriously he was being considered even before that, so I can't speak to how it's changed. Um, I just know that his, his name has come up in some circles. I've seen it um, not necessarily come up in others. So um, I would probably wait for the, the facts of all that to, to come out. It's obviously pretty heavy allegations levied against him. Um, it's just a really sad story um but yeah i, I would kind of wait for that to further develop um but i can't i can't speak to how that would have changed his candidacy because i just don't know how seriously he was even being considered before to be honest sure i don't know where i had archie griffin on the brain I, i'm blaming the uh, pandemic <laughs> yeah arch uh, i'm trying to th i'm trying to think that's a, that's certainly a name I don't know, he sounds like a baseball player or something like that i don't know yeah, but, yeah i'm with you yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to blame living at home for a while for messing with my focus a little bit. Nobody can blame you for that. We're all melting a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. And then now I want to get to the competition aspect that we kind of touched on. And you wrote about it this afternoon at NBCSportsChicago.com with the Pelicans and possibly the Nets. 
do you think that changes things from just 24 hours ago when Boylan was fired? Uh, well, it changes things in that there are teams in the mix. I mean, the Nets were always going to be in the mix. They have an interim coach in Jock Vaughn that has impressed people in the bubble. Obviously, the Nets are scrapping and playing, probably punching above their weight, um, if we could be honest about it. But if they do decide to replace him, that was always the destination that the Bulls um, were going to be competing with. And the Pelicans, uh, the Gentry News, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say it was preordained, but it's not a terrible surprise when you look at um, kind of in certain areas they underwhelmed this year and certainly underwhelmed in the bubble. Um, I don't know that it changes much in, in my own opinion, though, because I just don't see the Bulls necessarily as being in the same strata as the Pelicans and the Nets at this point. I mean, the Nets are a title contender next year. So the candidates that you've seen linked to them, Ty Lue being the most prominent, um, and our old friend at NBC Sports Chicago, Vinny Goodwill, was the first to report that back in March. Um, that, that name in particular screams to me, we need someone who's going to, you know, look after our mercurial superstars, the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and kind of just foster an environment of, um, of prioritizing them and allowing them to get going and kind of have their own free reign. Um, he's, a, he's a dude that's been a championship coach before um, under a similar environment with Kyrie Irving and, and LeBron James in Cleveland. But that's not a candidate that I would necessarily see as necessarily being a, a great target for the Bulls, a, a team that's kind of on the ground floor of a rebuild right now. Um, the Pelicans, similarly, um, ESPN uh, linked uh, Ty Lue and um, um, Jason Kidd uh, to, to their candidacy potentially. So that's, that, that's another instance where I think the Pelicans are closer to the track to contention now than the Bulls are. So the candidate crop that they're picking from will probably be more veteran, more experienced um, than necessarily the Bulls might. Now, Kenny Atkinson is a name that's been uh, mentioned, I think, also by ESPN uh, as a Pelicans target. So there's some overlap there. Um, we know the Bulls won't be competing with the Nets for Kenny Atkinson services, uh, fortunately for the Bulls, I suppose. Um, I, so I think it, it's certainly something where you can't deny that the Bulls are the third most attractive job out of those three. It's not an insult to say that. The Nets and the Pelicans are two of the you know better situations in the league right now, if you're talking about a coach stepping into, if not the best. Um, but it, I don't think that Bulls fans should worry too much about that just yet because it doesn't seem like uh, they're operating in the same sphere of candidates that the Nets and Pelicans are. So uh, the hope is that it doesn't hinder their search uh, too much. And with the Alvin Gentry news today, do you think the Bulls should call him? Do you think they would call him? Or do you think he's kind of out of the equation in this case? Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't speak um, – with any conviction on that necessarily. I do know that he's had a couple head coaching opportunities. Um, obviously things don't end swell in New Orleans. Again, they kind of underperformed this year. Um, from my seat, his teams have never been great defensively. He's, he's obviously a, a very creative um, offensive minded coach. But to me, the fact that a rebuilding team with as much promise as any situation in the league decided that he wasn't necessarily the one to foster the development and progression of their young guys. Um, and that's a much better developmental situation than the Bulls have right now. They just have more talent. The fact that that just happened there and the decision was made by a pretty trustworthy decision maker and David Griffin, who heads up their basketball operations there, that probably says to me that he might not be the right fit for the Bulls. Um, it, that's just in my own personal opinion and it's speculative. Um, I, I certainly, I guess, wouldn't rule it out. I mean, he's obviously um, just a class act and a great guy. Nobody who's met him could say a bad word about him. And, you know, he has gotten multiple opportunities across the league for a reason. Uh, he's a good coach. Um, but because of the, all those factors I just mentioned with New Orleans, I, I'm not sure he's the fit for the Bulls at this point. It seems like the Bulls' search is skewing more towards kind of fresh faces who, even if they haven't gotten their chance yet, um, we'll just kind of bring something younger and, and, and a fresher perspective to, to the coaching position. All right. We've gone through the candidate, the candidates, potential, possibly like not potential candidates, but for discussion's sake. So now I'm going to put you on the spot. You brought up Atkinson and Wes Unsell Jr. as your top two. If you're Arturis Karnaschovas or Mark Eversley, who's your top choice? Oh man. <laughs> I, I honestly would have to flip a coin because I've really been thinking about it. And then I, 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 love each of them and I, and I like him for, you know, kind of slightly different reasons. Put on the spot, I probably go Atkinson only because he's a little bit more proven. And I just see a lot of parallels between where the Nets started and where the Bulls are right now. Um, in that when Atkinson took over, he installed a, a similar offensive system to what the Bulls have right now, you know, very three-pointer heavy, rim attempt heavy, um, not much uh, of a mid-range game. 
Um, I, I think there's overlap there. And, you know, their offense, they were never a prolific offense before they had the stars on board that they have. And obviously their stars were hurt this year. So I'm hesitant to judge too much based on how they perform this year. Um, but I, I, I see a lot of consistency there. I see the fit uh, with Chris Fleming as an assistant. I know a concern um, that was uh, reported uh, along the, the gym decision timeline was, well, what happens to the assistants if we fire Jim? They were just hired last year and kind of brought in. Um, the Atkinson Fleming fit uh, might be a little bit more seamless there. So I, I think that could be a factor. Um, so I, I'd probably lean Kenny uh, by a hair right now just because of that proven experience and the potential synergy there. Um, but Wes Unsell Jr., man, I couldn't say a bad word about him from everything I've read uh, and kind of consumed so far. Um, and obviously he has the Nuggets tie with Karnaschovas. So for that reason, I think he's, he's a serious candidate to watch. But um, definitely Atkinson by, by a hair right now. And it's, it's very early. We're, we're, are we even 24 hours into this? We are 24 hours into this. It was yeah. early in the morning on Friday. But, um, yeah, it's early, but it's, it's fun to think about, to be sure. Oh, totally. And I, I think I've got to lean West Unseld right now just because I like going younger, the defensive mindset. Like, I, the defensive mindset always gets me because I'm a big Tibbs fan. Yeah. So I think I'd have to lean with Unseld, but I don't think I'd be disappointed with any of the candidates, especially Atkinson. Yeah, and he t- and and until he, t- I, I don't want to say he turned because I don't know how much to credit him for this, but he certainly was a, a big part of the Nuggets um, climbing from kind of the basement of the NBA in terms of defensive efficiency to being a respectable, if not, you know, they had flashes at the beginning of this season where they were pretty great defensively. And you look at their player development track record. I mean, it's something that we beat to death when Karnaschovas was hired. I mean, just look at the stable of young talent that they have on that roster that has been kind of plucked sometimes from unheralded backgrounds in terms of being undrafted or second round picks or, or found off the G league scrap heap or in the trade market. And they've turned that roster into perhaps the most promising young assortment of talent in the league. Um, you know, I'm not sure that they're title contenders on the level of the LA teams necessarily yet, but they're certainly on their way uh, and are ready to compete with those teams right now. Um, so, you know, I talk about Atkinson's player development record because he inherited such a desolate roster in Brooklyn and he turned them into a competitive team and a free agent destination. But um, Denver's roster is nothing to scoff at either. And even if, un- even if you can't credit Unsell for all of that, you probably shouldn't. He was certainly, he was there. Um, he saw the ways that a successful organization works. That's another, that's another thing about all these candidates, all from successful organizations. Even the guys we're not talking about, Darvin Ham um, has coached under Mike Budenholzer from when he was in Atlanta to Milwaukee, uh, Steven Silas in Dallas under Rick Carlisle. The, that those are the types of um, pedigree uh, and experiences that the Bulls should be seeking out right now. So um, you definitely can't lose. Uh, and I and I I'm I'm glad we disagree because it's fun to disagree slightly. Uh, but you definitely couldn't go on with Wes Unsell Jr. No no way. Oh absolutely. And then the last one for you, kind of moving on from the coaching side, just before I let you go here, we got to talk about the lottery coming up on Thursday. Obviously, yeah. it's all wherever the ball lands is wherever pick you get. I'm hoping it's not number seven, but that's a topic for another time. But say the Bulls do get like a top three pick in this draft on Thursday. How do you think that can shape this whole off season in a way outside of the coaching search? Yeah, it'd be interesting. I don't think it'll, it'll change much in terms of their roster flexibility um, just in the sense that they'll be an over the cap team. If and when on a Porter opts in and having to, um, pay the kind of cap allotments for their first and second round pick. They'll, they'll be an over-the-cap team. They'll be working um, with their mid-level and biannual exceptions. So that's those are kind of like role player level quality players that you're going to get um, for that type of money. And we'll see what happens with the salary cap at all. So I, I don't know if it'll shape much in terms of making a big splash, overhauling the roster, but it'll certainly be an indication of what the new front office's initial evaluation of the roster is, you know. There's obviously a lot of lead guard talent at the top of this draft. If they take a guy that looks like they might want him to be the point guard of the future, you know, what does that say about what they think of um, what Kobe White did at the end of last season? Um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they think um, a guy that they take is better or worse than Kobe, but it certainly says something that maybe they don't see the point guard situation as solved. Um, and you could say the same thing down the line, you know, take a guy like Anthony Edwards or a scoring wing, you know, what does that say about um, the confidence in Zach Levine, if they take a, a Denny Avdia or a Obi Toppin, what does that say about the confidence in Larry Markin and so, um, and so on and so forth down the line to Wiseman and Okongwu for Wendell Carter. I mean, we, we could pick these things apart, you know, endlessly and, and we will um, as fans of media. That's, that's what we're, uh, you know, wired to do. That's the fun um, 
yeah, it'll, it'll, so it'll certainly be fun to analyze from that perspective. I don't think it gives way to much major change. I think all of that will likely come uh, in 2021. Uh, but it'll be interesting. I mean, you mentioned that, that seventh pick thing. It would really just be ludicrous if they somehow found themselves in that spot again four years in a row and three years in a row getting the lottery odds to, to swing that way. Obviously, um, the, the first year of this run was trading into the spot and taking Larry Markkinen. Um, but it, to me, it's just perfect because it's widely considered to be a weak draft. This really would be the perfect year for the Bulls to jump up into the top four or three or even number one in a draft that many are calling, you know, one of the weakest in a long time. It would, it would just be so Bulls for that to happen. It really, it really would be. But between the coaching search and the draft, I'm really excited for this offseason. I think, like I said, the arrow is pointing up for this team. So I've been talking with Rob Schaefer of NBC Sports Chicago. Rob, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Really good stuff. It's good to talk to you next day, healthy. You too. That was Rob Schaefer. And thanks again to Rob for taking the time. I'm really glad that interview worked this week. But really, really good stuff from Rob. I'm really glad we could make something happen there on short notice. Want to remind you, you're listening to the Sunday Sports Shootout here on WAW 88.7 FM, broadcasting from the campus of Loyola University, in this case broadcasting from Dwight, Illinois, in my dad's office. But like I said in the interview, out of those list of candidates that he threw out there, I, I like Wes Unseld. I do. And that's because Adrian Griffin, not Archie Griffin, I cannot believe I made that mistake. And we also had it wrong, Archie Griffin was a football player. But, so that's, apologies for that. <laughs> but, anyway, now that Adrian Griffin has these accusa- accusations against him, which I don't take lightly, I think that, I think those are serious, even the fact that they're accusations. I know people are tend to like, oh, like, they're just accusations. Uh, in this case, I'm looking at the surface, those are serious. And this is really, really, that's a bad situation. So he was my top choice out of the gate. But now that that's going down, I think Wes Unseld Jr. is my top pick for the same reasons I told Rob. He's young. He's defensive-minded. He's got the relationship with Karnaschovas already. And I really think he'd be a good fit for the Bulls because of all of those things. And I really think he's the guy out of the gate. Again, we are more, a little more than 48 hours after the news broke of Boylan being fired. So it's still incredibly early. But it's always fun to just talk about it and see who the early candidates are and everything. And I'm excited for this offseason. Like I said, I I wholeheartedly believe this is the most interesting Bulls offseason since 1998. And it didn't sound like Rob disagreed with me, necessarily. And I'm curious... What you think, like, feel free to tweet at me at NickSchultz underscore seven. If you don't follow me, please do. I promise I'm funny and not too annoying. But shoot me a tweet. I love talking about this stuff. And this could be a discussion point all offseason. Is how this compares to 1998 when the two three-peats broke up. That dynasty broke up. And the Bulls went into a rebuild with Tim Floyd, which, fun fact about Tim Floyd, he's the only coach to have a worse winning percentage than Jim Boylan. I'm just throwing that out there. I think that's all I have to talk about Bulls. I actually, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I have more that I could talk about. But it was such a busy news week in Chicago sports that I have to move on to hockey. Let's talk hockey. Because the Chicago Blackhawks are now down 3 nothing to the Vegas Golden Knights. And it's not been great, to say the least. But... They're, they're down 3 nothing to the number one seed. And it's going to be interesting to see how they come out tonight in game four. Because last night, the offense wasn't there. And I wasn't really happy with the performance last night. And I know I'm not alone in that sentiment. Because, yes, they played hard. They battled hard. Like, I get all that. But that last minute, though... I want to talk about that last minute because it, I didn't think it was good hockey. I mean, I know they were battling, but it, it didn't seem like good hockey to me. And again, it goes back to the, the big storyline of the last two nights is missed opportunities. And I mean, 
they had good shots. I mean, I thought Kirby Doc was going to tie the game. And I thought Alex DeBrinkett was going to tie the game. Like, I thought they both had really good looks. But there were just so many missed opportunities last night. In that last minute, Crawford came out. So the Hawks had the extra attacker. And we're sitting there thinking, okay, they can keep it in Vegas' zone. No, Vegas still found a way to get into the Hawks' zone. And they managed to get shots off. Luckily, the Hawks played defense and could block them. But I was not at all impressed with that final minute. I was sitting there just get it out of their zone. And it when you keep it in your zone like that for that long, something bad's going to happen. I'm really surprised Vegas didn't score an empty netter. And, I mean, they had their chances, too, and the Hawks played incredible defense. I'm giving them credit for the defense in that last minute. Don't get me wrong. And people were saying on Twitter, they played hard. But, I mean, you could tell they looked gassed. But you cannot have the puck in your zone for that long and expect to have anything good come out of it, especially when you have the extra attacker. And that's the part that gets me. If it was normal hockey, if it was 5-on-5, we're good. Like, I would be, okay... Vegas is a really fast team, and they're going to push you. But the Hawks literally had a man advantage. And I get it. You're gassed. I just was not I was not impressed with that final minute. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I could be. But that was that was my takeaway from that game last night, was that last minute. I mean, they were, the Hawks were pushing and pushing. I, they had a couple of good looks, but I, I wasn't impressed with, with how they finished. And... I'll, I'm going to be very curious to see what happens tonight. Vegas is a, the favorite, and the Hawks are plus 152 underdog. And I, I really do think the Golden Knights win this game tonight if the Hawks can't find their offense. And if it's anything like last night, I don't think the Hawks are going to find their offense. The defense looks solid. Corey Crawford can only do so much. That's why he allowed the two goals. And I, I, I still say he's had a very impressive playoffs. But I don't know, man. I, have, I don't have a lot of confidence here. Because look, you look at that last... And the other thing about last night is Marc-Andre Fleury was in goal instead of Robin Leonard. When I, I wondered about that. When I saw Vegas put Fleury in net, I'm thinking, why? Right the hot hand. Leonard's been playing really well. Didn't matter. And I don't know if it's the youth. I don't know. I can't pinpoint what's up. But I, I, I got to tell you, they got to play better than that. And there's nothing more to it. But 5.30 puck drop tonight, game four. It's going to be really interesting to see which Hawks team shows up. Again, I'm not optimistic, but I'm not, I'm not the hockey expert here. I'm, kinda, I'm looking at it from a meathead fan perspective. But that's... That's what we got to talk about with the Hawks is, do they have a chance tonight? I don't think they do. Cubs, let's move on to baseball. Cause I got a lot of, I got a lot of baseball thoughts here, but I figured I'd lead with the Hawks before baseball because of the newsworthiness. But when baseball, the Chicago Cubs are 13 and five, that's a 722 winning percentage. That's the best mark in major league baseball. That's with losing two games in a row to the Brewers. And I know I've seen people wonder if we should be panicking, if people should be panicking that the Cubs are losing to the Brewers like that. And I, I don't think so. I know it's a short season and you can't really afford to lose a lot of games, but they're still 13-5 and five with the best record in baseball. I think they're fine. But I do have some thoughts as to why they have the best record in baseball right now. Because looking at this past offseason... Big storyline in the offseason. Cubs haven't done anything. Like, they they were slow in free agency. They didn't make their first free agent signing, like, first major league free agent signing. They signed a few minor league deals. Their first major league free agent signing came in, I think, January. They were the last team to sign a major league free agent. You know why? Because Tom Ricketts is crying poor. Oh, we, we have no money. Heh, <laughs> okay. But here's who the Cubs added. This offseason. I'm calling them the, the big three. Yes, there are only three. The, the big ones that they signed this offseason. Steven Souza Jr., Jeremy Jeffress, and Jason Kipnis. And Kipnis is on a minor league deal. 
That's it. That's all they added this offseason on the, on the roster. They still got Kyle Schwarber. They still got Jason Hayward. They still got Ian Hatt, Chris Bryant, Javi Baez, Nico Horner, Anthony Rizzo, Wilson Contreras. That's the lineup from last year. The only big subtraction was Addison Russell, and he couldn't get out of here fast enough. Nobody wanted him here. So you got those three additions to the roster. Now, you cannot tell me that Steven Souza Jr., Jeremy Jeffress, and Jason Kipnis can turn that team around. Because that, that team last year was disappointing. And we talked about it on the show a lot, about how disappointing the ending of last year was. The biggest addition, though, was not on the roster. And it's David Ross as the manager. Joe Madden's out. He's out in Anaheim with the Angels now. They didn't bring back his contract. So David Ross came in. And I think, like we talked about at the time, I think it's the breath of fresh air they needed. With Joe Madden, the Cubs were very lax. There was not a lot of accountability there. And Javi Baez even said there would be days he wasn't really in the right mindset. And it didn't seem like they were playing with a lot of urgency. And like I said, the big thing was the accountability. We talked about it at the time. And now David Ross is here and that accountability is there. And I think you've seen it. And the, the big reason you see it, and it's something that Joe Madden wouldn't do. I guarantee you Joe Madden would not do this. I would put, I'd bet all the money in my pocket, which is, I mean, it's all of $2, but I'd bet all my money in my pocket that he would not have pulled Craig Kimbrell from the closer spot when Ross did. I think he would have kept riding Kimbrell until he found his stuff. But the thing is, I don't think he would have found his stuff. Because Kimbrough would have been of the mindset that he's got the closer job, so he's got to work on it in-game. And that's going to cost the Cubs some games. But what Ross did, granted he had the one hiccup leaving Kimbrell in in Cincinnati, which I still say, it. well, I actually, I guess it's his second worst mistake now. I'll get to his top one in a minute. It just happened the other day. But when he left Kimbrell in against Cincinnati, I got to thinking, okay, what's he doing? And he explained his reasoning was he wanted to see how he did it in the moment, and I get it. Maybe he can find his stuff real quick. But later, he was asked if Kimbrough was keeping the closer role, and he said he didn't want to say anything, yet he was still having conversations with Craig. And that was a good sign. That was a really good sign that he said that, because I still say, I think Joe Bad would have said, Craig's our closer. That's our $16 million man right there. I don't know, Joe wouldn't have said that, but I'm saying like it would have been that sentiment was that he's the $16 million man and he'd have been the closer. But what Ross did was he saw that it wasn't working and he said, okay, we're going to try something different. And he'd throw Jeremy Jeffress out there. He'd throw Rowan Wick out there. And then he put Kimbrell in the other day and that was some of the nastiest stuff I've seen from Craig Kimbrell in a long time. And I think he's, it's small sample size, but I think he's getting it figured out. And one thing that David Ross said, and it's kind of, it, it kind of got swept under the rug, it seemed like. Because, I mean, the fans don't really pay attention to this stuff. But, I mean, I'm a baseball guy. I mean, I play, played it my whole life. I've umpired it. And when he said he had Craig working on a changeup, Kimbrell has never thrown a changeup. And it sounds like he's going to quit working on the changeup. Just throw it out the window. Focus on what he does best. And Thursday was the first time we saw Kimbrell at his best. That was some nasty stuff coming out of him. And I, I really think we're getting the Craig Kimbrell we were thinking we would get. And it's because Ross held him accountable. And he pulled him from the closer role. And now he's got to work for it. And I think he will. The other thing, staying on pitchers. Ross trusts his pitchers. And that's something that's been missing the last couple years under Madden. I point to Kyle Hendricks. First, he trusted him in the opening day starter spot instead of his pal John Lester, which everyone thought that Lester get the start because he and he and Rossi were friends. And that was right. That was right when I knew that Ross is not going to be everybody's best buddy. That's not how this arrangement's going to work here. Yeah, he's not going to be Grandpa Rossi. He's going to be David Ross' manager. So the first step was trusting Hendricks on opening day. And the second part of opening day was trusting him to finish the game. I mean, he came out with two outs in the ninth inning. 
And we're all sitting there going, you know, he's going to pull him. He can, he can do this. He can do, he can do this. And, he, and then Rossi talked to him, walked away. And then lo and behold, Hendricks finished the game. If that was Joe Madden out there, I think Kyle Hendricks would have been pulled in the seventh inning. He's throwing a gem. I think he would have been pulled in the seventh inning. So that's, that's right there, the big point. So he trusts the starters, and he should. The starting pitching has been phenomenal. Outside of a couple hiccups, but again, it's baseball. And they're not going to win every game. Now I want to talk about the, the bullpen's another issue. and I, I think Rossi's doing the best he can with what he's got to work with in that bullpen. But he trusts the starting pitchers, and he should. And also, can we talk about you, Darvish the other day, speaking of starting pitchers? Holy cow. That was good, you Darvish, the other day. And that, that's the you Darvish we saw at the end of last year. And it was really refreshing to see because usually you get either good you or bad you. And that was really, really good you. But that's what I think. I think it's all about pitching with David Ross, especially, but it's also the accountability there. And I, I don't think he's taken, I don't think he's taken any crap from anybody. And, you're seeing that, too, with the Cubs are the only team in Major League Baseball without a positive COVID-19 test. I think he's all about the protocols, and I think that's huge. Because it shows that he's not just about managing the players in-game. He's all about making sure they're accountable off the field, too, to make sure they don't get a positive test. That way you don't end up like the Cardinals, who didn't play for two weeks, which more on that in a second. That way you don't end up like the Marlins. You, you follow the protocols and your discipline, and then your your head's in the game. That said, that dugout is really fun to watch. I gotta shout out my guy Scotty Shagnot at Marquee Sports Network, and he's got a dugout cam going, and it's really fun to see the the screenshots he takes of the dugout are hysterical. It everyone's compared it to a high school baseball dugout, and that's exactly what it is. It is a high school baseball dugout. So he's blending the fun with the seriousness. And I feel like Joe Madden did that at first. I feel like when Joe Madden came in, it was all about the fun and the antics. But as time went on, the, the seriousness wasn't there. And there were good things Joe Madden did. I, th- I mean, I thought Legion Week was great. Where No BP, show up late. You, you show up, you play the game, you go home. There, There's room for that. Like, sometimes you need the breather. And there, the Cubs always did really well during Legion Week. But there's also times that you have to be very serious, and I think this is one of those times where Rossi's stepping in going, hey, we got to crack down in more ways than one. So I'm, I'm really happy with David Ross, and I think he's the reason why the Cubs have the best record in baseball. Because, they, I mean, that roster's almost a carbon copy of last year. The only thing missing, really, other than Addison Russell, but again, I wanted him out of town. The only thing really missing is Jose Quintana, and it's because he's coming back from injury. But the question is going to come up. Do you put Quintana in the starting rotation, which has been really, really good? Or do you put him in the bullpen, which has been struggling? I'm not really sure, and I'm going to be very curious to see that as well. The, only, the big mistake that Rossi made this, this weekend against the Brewers. How do I put this? So this would have been, I think this was Friday night. I'm, going to double, I'm double checking, but I think it was Friday night. And Cubs Brewers, ninth inning. And he comes up, Josh Fagley comes up as a pinch hitter. And I'm sitting there going, why is why is he in the why is he in the pinch hit right now? Because I mean Cubs had I want to say it was bases loaded. I'm double I'm double checking right now, but I'm pretty sure it was bases loaded. Yeah, bases loaded, one out, eighth inning. Why wouldn't you want Jason Kipnis in there? I mean, that's the thing is that Fagley came in for Jason Kipnis, who's a good hitter. Now, I don't like Josh Fagley. I don't. I, I, I think he's another, here's a name. I think he's another Mark Zagunas, where he's kind of overhyped as a minor leaguer. And now he's getting some major league at-bats, and I don't think he's performing. 
but why wouldn't you put Jason Kipnis up there in that spot? Kip's a good hitter. And I don't think Fagley's proved himself yet. So that's the only, that, was the, that was the big thing. And I think the Cubs had an opportunity to win that game, and it, it, a bad decision blew it. But again, you're not going to win them all. You're not going to make every decision right. And we can second-guess them all day. That's the joys, of, the joys of what we do, is we get to sit here and second-guess. But I wouldn't definitely, I would, Josh Fagley would have been the last person I wanted up in that spot. I'd have even wanted Javi Baez, who was O for his last, what, at that point? 14 against the Brewers? I would even want Javi Baez in that spot because Javi's proven himself that he can do it. He's in a slump. He's gonna, it'll even out. But I did not like Josh Fagley there. And I know I wasn't alone. Let's look at the south side of town because I brought up the Cardinals earlier and I'm going to get to that here because the White Sox, hype train before the season, even, even me sitting here going, yeah, the Sox are a really good team. I'm thinking playoffs for this team. The pieces are there, and now they're 10 and 11. They were 10 and 9 until they lost a doubleheader to the St. Louis Cardinals, who hadn't played in two weeks. That one hurt a lot. And I know the fans are getting frustrated. But now we got to start thinking is the Sox team for real? That's a complicated question because I do, I still say. That offense is lethal. I think it's absolutely dangerous. I mean, between Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, Yoan Moncada, Tim Anderson, Jose Abreu, if Yasmani Grandal can find his bat, that's going to be a damn good lineup. But they got to stay healthy. And I look at Larry Garcia, who tore a ligament in his thumb and is essentially out for the season. October is the earliest he can come back. That adds to a list of injuries. Now, I went through this last week, and I I actually still have my notes with me here. So this adds to the list of injuries with Aaron Bummer, Nick Madrigal, Tim Anderson's back now, Carlos Rodon, Ronaldo Lopez, Edwin Encarnacion was day-to-day last week, but he's back. But now Leora Garcia is added to that mix, and now you're without Garcia and Madrigal, who are probably your two top choices at second base. So now what do you have to do? So now Ricky Renteria has to punt and figure out what to do. The other alarming stat with the Sox team is the starting pitching. Actually, I mean, I guess the pitching in general, but especially the starting pitching because this, this rotation is good. I mean, Lucas Giolito was lights out last year. You've got, uh, I'm, I, just went, I just went blank. Hey, you got Dylan Cease, especially. Yeah, I mean, Dylan Cease should be... Should, he should be one of the best pitchers in baseball. I mean, granted, he's still developing. But, I mean, you think by now he's been up a year. You, you'd think he'd have it figured out for the most part. You got Dallas Keuchel, who he signed in free agency. And he's been, really, he's been good for him. I'll give him that. And you've also got Gio Gonzalez. So that's a solid rotation, I'd say. And that's a rotation that can win some games. But as a team, the White Sox have a 4.43 ERA. That ranks 18th in baseball. I mean, an ERA over four, that's dangerous territory to be in. But the big thing is they've gotten off to some really slow starts. And, I mean, I point to the Cardinals game yesterday. I think it was game one where they were down 4 nothing in the first inning. That can't happen, especially to a team that hasn't played in two weeks. You've got you've to gotta start strong. And Dylan Cease is actually the big culprit in this. Because every time I watch Dylan Cease pitch, he's struggling out of the gate. I, I always say he has the yips out of the gate. So I don't want to jump too far ahead. Because Sox have only played 21 games. It's August. End of the se- season ends next month. I think the White Sox really have to start thinking about, is Ricky Renteria the guy? I don't think he is, and I've said that before, and I think you're seeing it again now. And the name I want to point to is Lucas Giolito. I brought up that he was a 
force last year. Absolutely lights out. We were talking Cy Young. He earned the opening day start this year because he was so good last year. Last year, he went 14-9 and to 341 ERA. Okay? This year, he's 1-2 with a 488 ERA. There has been one major change since last year. And that big change is James McCann was catching him all of last year. And now the Sox brought in Yasmani Grandal. And Grandal is catching Giolito. And I brought this up a few weeks ago after opening day. I played the clip of Ozzie Guillen on NBC Sports Chicago. Talking about how he would have put McCann behind the plate on opening day with Giolito instead of Grandal. And I said at the time, there is a connection between the pitcher and his catcher. And I think Giolito and McCann had something last year. There was a trust there. They knew what they were wanting to do. They were very in sync. Now, yes, Monty Grandal comes in. I know he was your big free agent signing. I get that. But you also have to consider Grandal and Giolito had never worked with each other. And you look at Giolito's numbers last year, and you wonder, how much of a role did James McCann play in that? Because I think he played a huge role. And I would be very curious to see what would happen if Ricky Renteria put McCann behind the plate with Giolito. The other thing, and I'm running out of time, I got three minutes left. But what does the starting rotation issues and the ERA issues say about Don Cooper? Trust me, I love Don Cooper. The guy absolutely cracks me up. He's a great soundbite. And I, I think he's a genuinely good guy. However, I think he's too old school. I think he's too I think he's too old school for this young crew of pitchers, especially Dylan Cease. And like I said, Cease should be considered one of the up and coming pitchers. I think he should be starting to find his stride as a pitcher. And the first inning yips, I get it. He was fresh up last year, and it was, it was going to happen. But I hope he'd figure it out by now, at least not be as bad. And I, I really think that goes back to Don Cooper, who's entering, I think this is season number 18 as pitching coach. And I, I, know, what, I know what they say about the Ryan's Doors and loyalty and everything, but I think Ricky Renteria especially needs to think about is this who I want as my pitching coach with a young crew of guys? I mean, that starting rotation, for all intents and purposes, is young. I mean, Giolito. Dallas Keuchel's been around for a minute, but I wouldn't say he's an elder statesman. Gio Gonzalez has been around for a while, too. And again, I, I just don't think I'd consider him like a quote-unquote older guy. And obviously Dylan Cease is young. Yeah, Gio Gonzalez is the oldest pitcher in that rotation. And I think he's, let's see, quick math. He's, what, 34 going on 35? So he's not exactly young. But I, I really do think that starting pitching rotation needs to be so much better than it is now. Because the two, the two keys to winning baseball games, you can have the greatest offense in the world. You can be the 27 Yankees. But you got to have pitching, and you got to have defense. The defense is still shaky, but again, they're, I mean, they're a young team. You're going to have defensive hiccups. I get it. But the pitching, it all goes back to the pitching. And I, I think the Cardinals kind of exploited that this weekend when they swept the doubleheader yesterday. They got another game coming up today. And I, I know social media was fun yesterday with Sox fans really upset with how that doubleheader went. And they had every reason to be. The Sox looked like the team that hadn't played in two weeks. The Cardinals came out firing. And I've got about eight seconds left, so I didn't get to my Bears talk. I'll get to that next week. But my thanks again to Rob Schaefer of NBC Sports Chicago for taking the time to sit down yesterday and talk Bulls. Jim Boylan's gone. 
We're going to see what happens this offseason. I'm going to be all over it, hoping to have another fun guest next week. Until then, thank you, everyone, for listening, and have a great week. I will see you next Sunday.